in these times of that. It is 6 p.m. I'm Christopher Biddle, and you're listening to KBUT Community Radio News, a live broadcast panel discussion on COVID-19 in the Gunnison Valley. This week, we are joined by members of the Gunnison County Investigative Science Team. We'll be introducing our panel momentarily. First, I want to let you know that we are counting on you to help guide the conversation this evening. There are several ways that you can contribute, most immediate being a phone call, 970-349-7444 is the number here at KBUT. And we're standing by to take your questions and comments. Again, that que- that number is 970-349-7444. You can also join the conversation on Facebook, search for KBUT News, COVID-19 in the Gunnison Valley, and just submit your questions on that page. Or you can email news at kbut.org. All that information is up at our website, kbut.org. That's also where you can find recordings of past panel discussions. Now let's get to this week's panel. First, let me introduce a familiar voice for listeners of this ongoing Q&A series. He joined us way back in in March for our first panel. Uh, Chief of Trauma and Emergency Medical Physician at Gunnison Valley Health, Dr. Jason Hogan. Thank you for joining us tonight. Hi, good evening, Chris. Thanks for having me again. And another member of the investigative science team, notable member of the scientific community, executive director of the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory, Ian Billick. Thanks for being with us this evening. Yeah, thanks for having me, Christopher. Finally, rounding off this evening's panel discussion, and another member of the scientific research team, a retired professor at Colorado School of Health and now a local crestibution, Professor Julie Marshall. Thank you for being with us this evening. Oh, Julie, I believe you're muted. If we just get you to say hello, <laughs> that's all right. Uh, Julie needs to sort out her audio here in a moment, but I do want to let everyone know that, of course, We are joined this evening by my co-host for this ongoing series, editor of the Gunnison Country Times, Chris Rourke. Chris, how are you? I'm good this evening. Thanks. And it looks like, Julie, we're online. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. I'm here now. Thank you, Julie. I appreciate it. Again, my name is Christopher Biddle. I'm going to start by asking one obvious question. What is the investigative science team? Uh, this one, I suppose, will go to Dr. Hogan. So what do you do? What do you, how do you spend your time? What are you getting your information? Why do we need local scientists working on this very global problem? Uh, what is your role in decision-making? Uh, Dr. Hogan, I'd like you to take the lead on that question. Thanks, Chris. So you know, I think from the start of this incident and um, you know, recognizing you know, as this pandemic quickly evolved you know here in Gunnison County as well as across the country that you know there's just a incredibly large amount of information coming out you know on a daily basis and you know how do you filter that information how do you distill it and recognize what is you know good science what is you know maybe science is not adequately reviewed at that point um, and then you know what is actually actionable and actionable information that we can uh, take forward with us so uh, you know, as the incident progressed, um, you know, kind of early April, um, our team uh, through the Gunnison County kind of incident command, you know, recognized that, 
you know, there was a huge outpouring of uh, volunteers and the willingness of the community to help um, support this effort. And amongst that, we're, you know, very talented individuals here uh, in our own backyard and here locally in the community. And so um, went ahead and gathered a group of individuals, including uh, Dr. Billick and Dr. Um, uh, Marshall, as well as, um, you know, a host of other individuals with kind of varied skill sets to help try and, you know, recognize how do we take um, what is, you know, a national and global issue and try and distill it down to, you know, what are, you know, factors that are going to affect the people of Gunnison um, and how can we, you know, look, you know, over what we've done over the past couple of months to try and figure out what's worked and, you know, opportunities for improvement. Um, and then, you know, how do we continue to, you know, stay creative with this and uh, adapt, again, this kind of outpouring of uh, information that's coming through to, uh, again, create kind of actionable items that we can uh, monitor going forward. And Dr. Hogan, what is your specific role on the investigative science team? And so, you know, as I kind of, I feel that, you know, as an emergency physician, as someone who's a clinician has, you know, been taking care of these patients at screening sites, as well as in the hospital, um, kind of making decisions on, you know, you know, transferring individuals or whether they're appropriate to stay at the hospital, trying to bring that clinical context um, and kind of situational awareness of what's happening on the ground, whether it's through testing um, or other means that we're trying to monitor this virus. And then bringing that to, you know, individuals like Dr. Marshall or Dr. Billick or um, other members of our team who have expertise in mapping or, you know, kind of economic forecasting, um, building databases uh, so that we can all try and, you know, pull information that's coming from on the ground uh, and then also take advice or how can we, you know, better screen patients um, and translate that into, you know, better surveys or, you know, better testing strategies. And so it's kind of a, a back and forth dialogue that we have um, amongst this group that, you know, I kind of, uh, function kind of the, the intermediary between incident command, between the kind of health system aspect, as well as uh, this excellent team that we've put together. Sure. And I think I, I appreciate that answer. And I know that our listeners will appreciate that, to, uh, knowing that about everybody on the panel tonight. Ian Billick, uh, executive director with the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory. What do you bring to this uh, investigative science team looking into COVID-19? Yeah, my research background is in modeling and biology. Um, so I'm trained generally as a biologist and have an understanding of basic processes like viruses. Um, my undergraduate degree was in math and physics. And so when I jumped uh, to do my PhD in biology, uh, my early research was on modeling. So I'm fairly comfortable with the modeling side. Um, ecology is the study of how organisms interact with their environment. And a virus is something that's necessarily interacting with their environment. And epidemiology is something you actually cover when you uh, are trained in ecology. And then the last thing is I interact with 100 plus scientists a year. So I spend a lot of my profession evaluating science um, across a lot of different disciplines. Um, and as Dr. Hogan mentioned, there's a huge amount of science that's emerging. A lot of it's in the preprint stage, which means it hasn't been peer reviewed. And because it's moving so quickly, we don't want to take the next six months to wait for people to evaluate the science and show up in the journal. So I can bring some of that background for evaluating the science and trying to insert that into the conversation. 
Great. Thank you for that, Ian Billick. Uh, I appreciate that answer. Uh, finally, Julie Marshall, tell us a little bit about what your role on the uh, Gunnison County COVID-19 scientific research team is. Well, I joined the team a little bit later than the others about a month ago. And um, as an epidemiologist, some people might not have that in their everyday vocabulary. Um, we look at disease at the population level, as opposed to a lot of what Jason's work is, is at the individual patient level. And it's important in thinking about how to measure it at the population level, understanding the natural history of disease, how it progresses, and identifying patterns at that population level that can help you understand uh, the causes, what, what might be bringing it about in the community, as well as how to prevent it. There's many areas you're, you're all being very closely introduced to infectious disease epidemiology with this pandemic. My career has, was spent with chronic disease, working mostly with type two diabetes and obesity. About 35 years, I worked with partners in the San Luis Valley, our neighbor, um, on type two diabetes and obesity from the early epidemiologic studies, understanding it in Hispanics and non-Hispanic whites, and going on to think about prevention. And uh, that community experience also got me a lot closer to understanding local public health, because we worked very closely with all those partners, as well as the healthcare community in the Valley. Great. Well, thank you for that. Uh, so those those are my first questions. Help us sort of set the stage and help our listeners understand uh, who we're speaking with this evening. I'm going to send it on over to my co-host for the evening, Chris Rourke, editor of the Gunnison Country Times. Uh, Chris Rourke, what do you have? What questions do you have for the panel? Well, just a follow up to um, sort of what all three were talking about. We are hearing so much about science in this situation and um, we have armchair quarterback epidemiologists these days because you look up things on the internet and you listen to the news. How do we know what the best science is? I mean, you know, one study will say, oh, you should wear a mask to cut down on transmission. Another study might say masks are too porous to prevent transmission. How do we know who to believe when it comes to the science of COVID-19? Dr. Hogan, do you want to take that one first? Yeah, that's an easy first question, uh, Chris. I appreciate you <laughs> throwing that out there. Uh, yeah, the you know so and that's you know kind of the situation that we recognize on a day to day basis, right? And so it's trying to um, you know gather you know where your information is coming from, uh, where you know how how that information applies to you as an individual or you know as the community at large, and so. You know, there are, there are certain things that we're looking at that you know may work great at a, in a large metropolitan area but aren't going to be effective to a small more rural population like Gunnison um, you know I'd be happy to jump in and talk about mass um, the uh, you know one of the so to jump into this one of the uh, earliest groups that um, we had go through the antibody testing at Gunnison Valley Health was a collection of um, healthcare workers and they, uh, out of this small group, it wasn't necessarily a totally randomized uh, group, but two out of 50 individuals um, ultimately tested positive for antibodies, which that means 48 
out of that group tested negative for antibodies, meaning they didn't have evidence of exposure. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, have faith in this test that we're running at GVH in terms of the negative results coming back being true negatives. And what that ultimately told me is that, you know, what the basic practices that we're doing at the hospital, you know, wearing a mask, you know, uh, you know, high, hand hygiene and, uh, you know, isolating sick individuals works. And so, you know, we're seeing that on broader levels. Um, you know, we're getting more and more information that masks that fit appropriately, that are worn appropriately, uh, help reduce transmission risk, both for the individual who's trying not to get sick as well as the individual who is actually sick. So, um, you know, that was just an initial take home. So to answer your broader question, uh, you know, I think that's our role is to try and assess what the, what, and, you know, Dr. Billick, as well as Julie Marshall, like all are more familiar with, you know, kind of distilling what is good research that's being done as well as what is not uh, as good of research being done. Um, and that's going to be on a continuum, you know, as we progress through this pandemic. So I think our role is not only to, you know, kind of try and distill that information in terms of what, what is actually good science, but then how do we communicate that to the broader population at large? Okay. And I'll let... I do have a follow-up question on antibody testing, but I know Chris has a, a series of questions later, so I'll hold that. But my other question is for Julie. Um, you know, I've kind of wondered, what's the significance of normalizing the numbers per population? Like we look at case count per 100,000, and it, it seems to be significant. In fact, Gunnison was considered a hot spot because you know, per 1,000 people, we would have had a normalized case load of, of much greater than what we do. But yet our actual cases are only, you know, a little more than 100. So what is the significance of, of, about comparing our case numbers to, you know, uh, uh, 100,000 people? And Julie, well, before you... Kind of an arbitrary number. Julie, I'm sorry. I just want to let folks know. I just want to jump in real quick before you answer that question uh, that they, we are speaking tonight with the Gunnison County Scientific Research Team. You can call in and ask your questions at 970-349-7444. My name is Christopher Biddle. We are joined with uh, by Chris Rourke of the Gunnison Country Times. Uh, Ian Billick, Dr. Jason Hogan, and Julie Marshall, all with the Gunnison County Scientific Research Team. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Julie, but tell us a little bit about what uh, population has to do with this. Uh, yes. So uh, you want, ideally, it's of the people at risk, which we look at as the total population at this point. But if you think about um, disease, in New York City, and 100 cases is probably not a big deal, whereas 100 cases in a very small community um, is a big deal. So it's trying to give reference to how, you know, what the size of the population those cases are coming from. But does it really have significance in, in the sense of we have 100 and some odd cases here and our healthcare system doesn't seem to be overwhelmed. It seems like we're managing the number well. So I almost feel like sometimes when we compare it proportionately, perhaps we're maybe blowing it out of proportion. Um, I, I, I know what you mean. And it's because of that first, um, you know, the first wave that we had here that was so high. Um, but I think if you looked through, uh, this whole state has done pretty well, I think, in terms of 
managing the disease and the healthcare managing the disease. Um, so it is relative. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it, it's a question I lay away at night thinking about, does it really? <laughs> I do have enough. Go ahead. Yeah, just to follow up to that, I think, you know, we're kind of looking at those absolute numbers and those absolute numbers being extrapolated to like a, a larger population in, in terms of that reference that you're talking about. And I still think that our absolute numbers do not totally reflect the burden of disease that was present during that initial spike. And so, you know, very early on, just due to lack of testing um, and the ability to test everyone who was truly symptomatic. Um, you know, we were trying to multiply whatever number we were having by a factor of, you know, five or 10, um, which I think kind of gets to where the, the actual burden of the disease was. So I see where you're coming from, Chris, but, you know, and I think hopefully at some point we'll get more information, um, as to what that true, um, exposure rate was. Um, but, you know, for right now, I, I, I kind of see where you're, uh, coming from, but the, the the absolute numbers just don't reflect the, the initial burden that this community was facing. Sure, I, I mean the criticism being is that that perhaps by um, considering what is not reported is the potential of inflating numbers, and so that's why I just wanted to to explain why you consider the exposure much greater, and and I guess that will be revealed in antibody testing. Yeah, and that, that would be the how this would ultimately, um, I think, how we as us as a community would get a better idea is through um, well-developed antibody testing, not necessarily just uh, the current first come, you know, per server kind of opt-in, but uh, you know, using an epidemiologist like Dr. Marshall to help kind of structure a um, population-based survey. Um, again, I have faith in the current tests that we're rolling out now, but it, we also have to recognize that these tests are going are going to continue to get more and more accurate, and so maybe having a little bit more of a lag time to allow um, you know increased accuracy as well as increased funding to support an effort like that would give us a better idea of that true population exposure. Um, and you're also working on something called the coronameter. What is that, and where can I get one? <laughs> I'm going to let Ian uh, discuss that. That'd be great. Yeah, Ian Billick, uh, Executive Director with Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory. I'm curious about this as well, and I know that uh, a lot of folks are wondering of, um, what the Corona Meter is. Tell us about it. Yeah, this is a tool that public health has been working on and the Science Investigative Unit has been assisting with. Um, I think that a lot of people in the public would like a little bit more understanding and transparency around the decisions that are being made for the public health orders. And so the attempt is to identify when the hospital and when um, is at risk, so when it might be overwhelmed and when the disease might be taking off. Um, and because of the lag time between when someone gets infected and when they actually show up in the hospital, you don't wanna wait two or three weeks to decide, hey, hospitals overwhelmed because at that point we'll be stacking people up in Fred Field like they prepared. So the intent is to identify triggers and allow the public to watch those triggers 
and then um, public health has been working on public health orders that would be tied to those different risks. And so people could see in advance when we're getting closer to those thresholds and then understand what would happen once those thresholds are passed. So the state um, in granting a, a variance said that we have to remain under 17 cases over the course of two weeks to keep uh, the variance you know, still in place. Is, is this coronameter going to measure that or keep track of that, so to speak? Did you want to grab that, Jason? Do you want me to handle it? Yeah, and uh, I'm happy to. The you know, so what the coronameter, this COVID risk assessment tool, however we're going to ultimately phrase it, uh, what it's looking at is you know a, a handful of factors, and to kind of break those down, you're looking at the increasing number of symptomatic individuals who are testing positive, the increasing numbers of people who are self-reporting as symptomatic. You're tracking to make sure that you know whoever is an individual who feels like they're symptomatic uh, and needs a test that they can actually get a test, which again is what we were lacking early on. Um, and then we're also looking towards you know our local hospital here in Gunnison as well as our regional referral centers, making sure that you know they have adequate beds, you know PPE supply, um, as well as kind of uh, you know ICU capabilities for those uh, sicker patients within our regional facility. So to answer your question, yes, we're, that's, that's what we're trying. That's what this group has been most tasked with is trying to figure out what some of those early indicators are. Um, so the state, like you're referencing is, um, with those variance requests saying that, um, you know, if we hit a certain threshold that, you know, they're no longer going to honor those variance requests and that we'll have to go back to that more restrictive measure. And that's coming directly from state public health officials that falls in line with what the national and CDC recommendations are um, in terms of kind of that balanced, you know, you as a whole, as a community should not necessarily be opening more higher risk uh, areas if you're seeing a significant increase or uptick in cases. So, um, you know, we're, what we're recognizing is that uh, while this disease progresses slow for each individual, um, meaning that, you know, you're asymptomatic uh, for likely the initial four or five days, and then there's a lag time before you present to the hospital, which is more around that kind of 10 to 14 day range um, that, you know, it's not, we can't just look at, you know, what our hospital numbers are looking at, looking like before we decide to um, make a change or, or decide that there might be an increase in cases. So I think that it, that transparency is really important, though, because I know members of the business community are just waiting for the rug to be pulled out from under them again, you know, if we, when those cases start going up. So I guess uh, the coronameter will be online for people to look at. Yeah, that's the ultimate goal. You know, our group has kind of put the, um, uh, what we, you know, after a lot of thought, you know, has gone into this and our group has kind of um, delivered this, you know, as our initial draft to the um, incident command structure. And so from there, um, the idea is to, you know, in order to avoid people feeling like the rug has been pulled out from them, to have more of that transparency, to be able to see kind of what those indicators are, and then see kind of what maybe some of the, you know, public health measures would ultimately be tied to those uh, increasing levels that are showing increased viral spread or lack of available resources. Um, so that that's certainly in the works. I think that the dashboard that was put together by our county, um, by Eric Niemeyer, has to be um, applauded. I think that's 
been a, a huge source of transparency um, for our county and is one of few kind of similar dashboards uh, in the county to kind of give people the transparency of what's actually happening in terms of positive tests, negative tests, symptomatic individuals. All right, thanks. I think that's where you really get the buy-in from the community when they can see that and they, they have ownership in it too. Absolutely. I completely agree. This is KBUT Community Radio for the Gunnison Valley. My name is Christopher Biddle. You are listening to a live broadcast Q&A with members of the Gunnison County Investigative Science Team. Uh, we are asking you, the listener, to help us guide the conversation. What do you know? What do you want to know about COVID-19? Do you want to know about transmission, the likelihood of catching the disease? Are you concerned about testing capabilities? Do you want to know more about the progression of the disease? And it's it's now many forms. Uh, and that question, actually, I would like to pose uh, to Ian Billick. Ian, we're learning more about folks who are having cognitive problems after, quote unquote, recovering from COVID-19. Uh, we're also learning more about inflammation and how it affects children. Uh, and so, so Ian Billick, when, when these, when this disease was first noticed, it was compared to the flu. How are researchers around the world now describing how COVID-19 attacks the body? And, and I'll give a quick answer and then turn it over to Jason. Cause I think Jason's probably seen, you know, the full range in the hospital, but I will say that, that this is a strange disease and it's affecting bodies in very different ways. And I think um, if we all recall, we've only been on this journey since the end of January, early February. So I know that it feels like we've been stuck inside our homes forever, but it's only been a couple months that, that scientists and doctors have had a chance to look at the disease. And so we're still learning quite a bit about it. And a lot of the initial things that people were focused on were the rep respiratory problems and the problems breathing that were killing lots of people and killing them fairly quickly. But we know that this virus is showing up in different parts of the body. The receptors, um, there are these proteins on the surface of the cell walls that the virus use to break into our cells. Um, those receptors are found throughout our body. And so there's a lot, unfortunately, that we're still learning in terms of the disease and how it impacts us. And that's showing up as rashes, COVID toes, cognitive issues. Um, the respiratory part is just a small subset. And I think we have a lot to learn over the next three to six months. Um, I'll turn it over to Jason because he's in the hospital and actually sees cases, unlike me. Yeah, thanks, Ian. I think um, you hit the highlights there. You know, I, I, the most important take home is that initially we were, you know, thinking this is like more of a pure respiratory illness. And now, because of those receptors that you talked about that are present throughout the body, you know, we're seeing, you know, inflammation, you know, throughout the colon. So, you know, I've seen people kind of develop appendicitis from this, uh, have had, uh, you know, kind of people coming in with what looks to be a heart attack. Um, and then it's mainly just, you know, kind of inflammation around those blood vessels in their heart. Um, have also had, you know, people come in with stroke like symptoms, um, not yet to our hospital, but those are you know, widely reported, especially, um, especially in more harder hit areas such as New York. Um, and what it gets back to is just, we have to start thinking this, thinking about this virus is more causing kind of systemic inflammation. Um, that's not just isolated to the lungs or respiratory, um, system. So, you know, that, and that also is kind of what we're seeing now with kids, uh, who we initially thought were uh, more protected, uh, 
from having more of the severe complications. And while it does seem to be kind of uh, low numbers, it's being recognized that there is now this multi-system um, inflammatory syndrome in children, similar to what uh, has been recognized as Kawasaki disease that um, causes more systemic inflammation. Um, so I think as Ian is, and all of us will continue to say, there's still so much more to learn um, about this virus and we're gonna continue to try and um, you know, keep people updated and, uh, in terms of what to look out for and what to um, be aware of. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I, I, a lot of the questions that I pose to uh, experts and officials during re my reporting on this um, basically ask them to look into a crystal ball. Um, and we appreciate, you know, your attempt to do that. And we know that it can be very difficult. Julia Marshall, I am wondering, with your background in epidemiology, is there any um, glimpse of what a quote unquote new normal might look like? Um in terms of how do we protect the public from transmission uh, in the future? I know that I know that we are understanding that these diseases and the their appearance, um, their arrival, <laughs> um, is, can can be can be a lot. You know, it's a lot more likely than we knew before, um, and we're all, all obviously experiencing that. So, what does a post COVID nineteen world look like, Julie Marshall? Uh, at least in your crystal ball. Well, it's going to be, you know, we anticipate that it's going to be a while before we have a vaccine that's widely available or, or a very effective treatment or even herd immunity. So we need to think about what our new normal is uh, when the virus is present and, present and able to be so easily transmitted and outbreaks can happen. <clears throat> um, one of the things that uh, is very important people have heard about is the, the um, need, well, actually, let me, let me step back and just mention that um, kind of related to what Jason was saying earlier, in order to reduce disease spread, you really need two things. One is to limit contacts of the infected individual with others. And the other is, the second thing is to reduce the transmission probability per contact. And to limit contacts, um, the recommendations are physical distancing and contact tracing. Contact tracing with appropriate quarantine. Then the reducing the transmission is really about wearing masks in public. Um, as one of the primary measures or primary ways that we do that. So I think that's gonna be with us for a while. The contact tracing, the physical distancing also I think is gonna be with us for a while. It's gonna be difficult to have really large events, um, at least with where we're at with the knowledge right now. Contact tracing um, really to be effective uh, the community can't already be overwhelmed with the disease because it really requires rapid identification of, ca of cases. Uh, we need to be able to test and get the results rapidly and then identify contacts in order to, to uh, get the infected individuals 
and their contacts who are also infected to not be infecting others. Uh, so that's, that's um, something that the public health department is working on and they've got, they're hopefully soon getting some support from the state to increase their contact tracing manpower um, when we do have outbreaks. And I guess, yeah, that's probably, I don't know. Did I answer your question? Yeah, we, we can we can come back to it a little bit more. I do have some, I think you brought up some uh, interesting topics. Uh, first of all, I do want to let our listeners know that they're listening to KBUT Community Radio News. We are joined this evening for a live broadcast uh, panel discussion by the Gunnison County uh, scientific inve- investigative scientific science team, excuse me. Uh, that includes Dr. Jason Hogan, emergency medicine physician at Gunnison Valley Health, Ian Billick, executive director of the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory, and Julie Marshall, retired professor of epidemiology at Colorado School of Public Health. And of course, I am joined by my co-host, Chris Rourke, editor of the Gunnison Country Times. My name is Christopher Biddle. Uh, You can go to kbut.org to find out all the information you need to know about this show. However, we are asking the audience to help us guide questions this evening. Uh, 970-349-7444 is the number to call. Uh, You can also join the Facebook group or email news at kbut.org. And again, all of that information is at our website kbut.org. I also want to let you know that support for KBUT comes from Somrack Concept and Structure, a Crested Butte general contractor offering design and build services from drawings through construction to a turnkey finished home. Ben and Kate Somrack are joined by a team who feel fortunate and humbled to help others bring their visions to life and make this magical place a home. Somrack.net, S-O-M-R-A-K.net. Julie Marshall, you started to talk about vaccines. Uh, I have a question. It's the way I've heard vaccines talked about has always been an inevitability. Is it inevitable that we will get a vaccine? Are we definitely going to get a vaccine? Uh, or is that is there a chance that uh, you know that we won't ever have actually a vaccine to deal with COVID nineteen? My understanding is that it's likely we will, but there is a chance that we won't. There are some diseases like HIV uh, viral disease, which they have tried for many years now and not succeeded at a vaccine, um, and they don't know for sh- sure right now whether when you have a positive antibody tests suggesting you've mounted an immune response, uh, whether that actually protects you from a second infection um, or how long it protects you. Um, Some vaccines don't last as long as others. We have some like, I believe measles uh, is good for life. So there's uh, still a fair amount unknown. So in other words, uh, there is no such thing as definite immunity from COVID-19 as, as far as we know. We don't know the answer to that. I, I, you know, I would ask the others to chime in if they have any different information. Um, did, did anybody else want to speak up to that? I mean, the, I think the additional comment, you know, I think people are looking towards, you know, the vaccine is the ultimate um, endpoint, you know, as we recognize how challenging it's going to be to ultimately get to herd immunity. And I think, you know, some of the, you know, basic measures that we were talking about initially, as well as what Julie just touched on, uh, are going to be with us for that kind of 18 
uh, month to 24 month duration. You know, the concerns that I have about, you know, the vaccine or, you know, if we're able to develop a um, effective vaccine that, that uh, is proven to prevent infection, at least to a, a decent percentage of individuals, you know, it's just more of that supply chain um, issue and how do you um, make that widely available um, to, you know, individuals across the country with, you know, 330 million individuals, um, as well as, you know, broader populations, more resource limited areas. Um, so it's one thing to, you know, for a lab to announce that, you know, they have a, an effective vaccine, but then, you know, what does it look like in terms of making sure that every individual who needs that uh, is able to get it in a timely fashion, which is more of my concern. Great. Thank you for that answer, Dr. Jason Hogan. Uh, Chris Rourke with the Gunnison Country Times, I believe you wanted to ask a question, follow up. Yeah. So if antibodies don't necessarily mean immunity, and it's going to be a long time before we have a vaccine, is it possible we get to herd immunity through exposure before we have a vaccine? And where are we in developing herd immunity? Is there any way of telling? I'll let you. Ian Billick, I think you're being called on to answer that question. Can you let us know what's the deal with herd immunity? I think that's a great topic. I, I was hoping that we would get around to that eventually. Um, how do we get to herd immunity? Is that a reality? Is uh, that what is herd immunity? So, herd immunity is when a sufficient number of people in the population are immune to the disease, but the disease is not able to jump to one or two more people before your immune system beats it down. Um, so the, the disease works by being able to jump from one person to another. And if it can't jump because most of the people that it's running into are immune, you get what's called herd immunity. Um, the problem um, in terms of a pathway towards immunity, herd immunity or one, we don't know um, whether people are immune and how long it will last. So a lot of the previous coronaviruses, um, whether or not you have an immune response depends upon two different things. One is whether the immune response that your body mounts stays with you. So your body could develop an immune response, but then in nine months or a year later, it could ramp that down. So even if you had some kind of immunity six months prior, it doesn't mean that you keep it. It's also true that viruses uh, mutate. Coronaviruses are a little unusual and they have this self-regulating system. So they don't mutate as much as some of the other viruses, which suggests that if we develop a vaccine, our immune system ramps up, they're less likely to mutate beyond that. Um, the other challenge with herd immunity is currently the estimates of the number of people that have been infected are still pretty small. While I know that it seems like everybody thinks that they were infected, the reality, and I think we're seeing this when people are getting the antibody test, um, only a, a smaller percentage of them are actually testing positive. And it's not because the antibody tests are wrong. Um, you know, I see a lot of speculation where people said that they had it and they can't understand why they were negative. Well, it could be that they didn't that they were sick, but they didn't mount an antibody response which doesn't mean good things for herd immunity. It's also probably true that a lot of people had something else other than the coronavirus. So, um, so it's not clear, even if we went through the cycle and incurred another 15 X deaths, 
So there have been about 100,000 in the United States. And the upper end of the number of people that have been affected is around 4%. And so if we had to get the 60% in order to get herd immunity, that would be another 15x in terms of the number of deaths, so a million and a half. And it's unclear that after a year, all of those people who were uh, infected would still be immune. So we might have to do it again every year. So, so I, um, go ahead. Well, I, I just I, I think you, you, I want to make sure that we get this really clear with the, the, the math that you just used there. You're saying that in order to reach herd immunity, herd immunity in the United States, another million and a half people have to die. So, so it's hard to put estimates because there's a lot that we don't understand about the epidemiology. But if we simply look at the number of people that we think have been infected, and that includes asymptomatic people, and this is based upon the antibody tests that are starting to roll out elsewhere, we think somewhere probably 2 to 4% is a good estimate. And we've had about 100,000 deaths in the United States. In order to get to herd immunity, we're going to probably have to be somewhere 60 to 80% of the people would have to be immune at the same time. And so it's not clear. So that would be to get to 60% would be 15 times the 100,000 deaths we've already experienced. So Ian, I have a question regarding that because I was looking at the figures last week and the antibody testing that's going on and about 24% of those tested are showing antibodies. But that does not mean that we're 24% or have 24% herd immunity, correct? I think some people are misunderstanding that. Yeah, the people that are going in and getting tested are the people that think they were sick. And so if we're seeing 25% of the people that get the antibody test, we can be relatively confident that the number of people that have been infected in the population is much smaller. You know, personally, when I looked at the numbers as part of the investigative science team, I, you know, I estimate somewhere five to 10% of the population of Gunnison could be infected. That would be extremely high. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also true that Gunnison had one of the highest infection rates. And so it wouldn't be surprising that it would be extremely high in Gunnison County. That's still a long way away from what it would take to get herd immunity in Gunnison County. And then when you throw in people coming from elsewhere that may not have been exposed at the same rate. And then it's also true that if you have to get to 60% in order to get to herd immunity, there's a lot of inertia. And so you would get well past 60% before you would actually see the transmission rate dropping. And so on the high end, we could still see a little bit Wow. I mean, that's, that's, uh, it sounds like we have a long way to go. You're listening to KBUT Community Radio News. This is a live broadcast panel discussion of COVID-19 here in the Gunnison Valley, as well as all around the world. We are joined, uh, we have the privilege of being joined this evening by two PhDs and an MD. Uh, We have a lot of experience on this uh, panel tonight, and we appreciate everyone joining us. We are getting some questions sent into us now. You can submit your questions by calling 970-349-7444 and and a plethora of other ways to submit. All that information is at kbut.org. I do want to remind our listeners that uh, we are speaking with scientists this evening and not policymakers. We will continue to have both on our show. Um, I can guarantee that. 
here on KBUT. So a lot of the questions that we are getting are about policy, and I know that um, you know someone on our uh, some on our panel may be reluctant to talk about um, you know what should or should not be done. But maybe we can talk about pros and cons, um, and something that's been brought up a couple times uh, in our questions now. A couple people have asked about the possibility of screening visitors. Can we talk about the pros and cons of screening visitors in terms of controlling the spread of this disease? And that would, I, I assume that means, you know, people coming into the valley, they're stopped at a checkpoint and they are given a questionnaire or they're given a test. Talk about why or not, why not we would want to do something like that. Uh, and I'm going to send that one to Dr. Jason Hogan, but I want to leave it open to anybody else who maybe wants to answer. That's a great question, uh, Christopher, and you know certainly something that um, we have to think about. You know, we have to recognize that uh, one of our um, one of the reasons that Gunnison County had one of the highest infection rates early on was because of uh, being a tourist destination, um, and you know one of the greatest variables that we have in terms of continuing to try and control this um, virus or suppress it is is the kind of influx um, of people who might be coming from um, places that have uh, different infection rates uh, currently. And so what we're seeing now is we're kind of going into more of like a, what some people have called like a patchwork pandemic. Um, and so, you know, there are going to be certain hotspots in different areas um, and certainly you know, visitors or tourists coming from some of those uh, higher infection uh, uh, rates um, you know, could potentially introduce this as a, as a new outbreak. And so what I think we have to try and figure out is what are more effective means um, to do that. And so, you know, I personally, um, this is my opinion, don't think that, uh, you know, a screening checkpoint would be the way to go. Um, but what I do think, you know, uh, could be more of a realistic option um, and could be uh, more open for discussion would be, you know, kind of making sure that we have appropriate resources for anyone who's coming in, you know, uh, that might be symptomatic or might be coming from a high risk area. Um, you know, so if they're staying in a uh, local lodging to make sure that they have the available information um, to, you know, have access to testing in Gunnison County, that way, if they're symptomatic, you know, we can get them a, a rapid test and then we can, you know, isolate that individual, you know, and as well as further isolate it from other um, people who might be in that same, um, you know, uh, lodging area or other kind of uh, area where they might come in contact with another individual. And so, you know, this is one of the, I think, biggest issues we have to think about as we're kind of going into the summer tourist uh, season, as, as well as as we start to reopen um, things. And, you know, I'd be happy to see if Ian or Julia have further comments on it. I think it, it would be very helpful if, if it were possible to have a screening as people came in, but I think the practicality or the acceptability um, probably doesn't make that uh, very possible. It'd be helpful to know about those people so that if, you know, if the contact tracers are trying to contact contacts, uh, to know where they live, to know how long they're being there, to know some of those things may be helpful in that, those future processes. 
I just want to jump in here and let folks know they're listening to KBUT Community Radio News, a live panel discussion regarding COVID-19 here in the Gunnison Valley. We're speaking with members of the Gunnison County Investigative Science Team, and we are taking questions from our listeners. Information on that, if you want to submit your question, can be found at kbut.org. We are going to continue to do this series, so if we don't get to your question tonight, uh, we will try our best to get to it in the future. Um, But we do have a couple of listener submissions, uh, listener questions, and I'm going to actually direct this one back to Julie as well. uh, we've been hearing uh, some. We've been hearing about outside transmission, about people. Um, uh, well, we've been we've been learning more about what um, spaces are most dangerous, more most susceptible to the spread of the disease. We're learning that uh, being outside is um, a good way to diminish the likelihood of you catching the disease. Um, but tell us a little bit more about that. I'm interested to know how that works. And does that mean that we should all be having fans in, you know, highly ventilated indoor spaces? Uh, tell us a little bit about that, Julie. So the indoor spaces, the virus, um, as there's now been quite a few experiments that look at when you cough, uh, when you sneeze, and even when you're just talking, droplets with the virus that contain the virus are spewed out and they can go quite some distance. They can really go more than six feet a lot of the time. And the problem with indoors is that it's closed. Um, There's not a lot of circulation. And so it's likely to be a much greater viral load. So you're likely to get a higher dose of the virus. Whereas when you're outside and you're out in the fresh air and there is a breeze and you can probably keep more distance from people that it's going to dissipate. So it makes um, the viral load likely to be lower. So then can I just infer, you know, that my follow-up questions to that then would be, do, yeah, do we, should we be ventilating our houses? Should we be leaving doors and windows open? Should we be driving with car windows down? Um, is that a good way of, you know, per, perhaps if you have to share a vehicle with somebody and you're not sure if that person might be an asymptomatic carrier, is driving with the windows down a good way of, of, you know, is that an easy precaution? It seems reasonable to me. I have not seen something about that. Has anybody else? Ian uh, or Dr. Uh, Dr. Hogan, have you all heard anything about Venta, I mean, how, how, you know, should we all be, um, should we all have flowing hair <laughs> at all times? We all need convertibles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, no, I think, I think it gets back to, again, some of these basic measures that we're trying to um, encourage people to use. And so, you know, if it's, the, to, I had an additional thought, you know, on the tourist uh, aspect as well, and it still stays on kind of the same topic would be that, you know, I would like for people coming to visit Gunnison County to, you know, recognize us, us as an example um, of a community that's, you know, still kind of coming together to have a proactive uh, approach to this. And so, um, you know, with wearing a mask, wash your hands frequently, trying to maintain that distance when you can. Um, and so, you know, if you're in a, if you're in a shared vehicle, I think kind of taking that to uh, another level, you know, if you're concerned about, individual who may not may be outside of your household, it could be a higher risk contact, 
And I, I think it makes sense for both of you to be wearing their masks um, and cool. for both of you to have the uh, windows down. Um, I see a lot of people driving around in cars with a mask on and they're by themselves. And I don't think that's as effective, um, but you know, kind of, we have to be smart and reasonable and practical with this. Absolutely. Uh, great. Well, you're listening to KBUT Community Radio News. Thank you so much to our panel for joining us this evening. We have, um, you know, a handful more questions from uh, listeners that have sent in. We, we have a lot of people asking about masks. I know that we've talked about masks. Is it true that masks are the, I think this has already been said, but I just want to make sure that I heard this correctly, that it is the 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 easiest way and the easiest, most um, effective way of, of preventing spread in the public uh, wearing masks outdoors. Did I hear that correctly? I think it was actually a statement that I heard that I heard Julie say. So maybe I'll direct that to your way, Julie or Jason, okay. if you'd like to answer. Um, yes. I mean, I don't, <clears throat> I've actually just seen a chart that, that gives, um, kind of indoor outdoor with you know with people you know you don't it's got a number of I know what you're talking about I know the chart that you're talking about and it's a uh, if you're if anyone's curious looking at it it's I know it's available on the the governor's Facebook page I, that's where I saw it but I, yeah sorry I didn't mean to interrupt but, but go so, ahead so um I think definitely um from what we know that wearing a mask in public, especially if you're near people. If you're not near people, then it's a different story. So I wondered as I was walking today whether, you know, maybe it's just also just a sign that this is what we do now because I see a lot of people without masks even when they're fairly close together. Um, but I think the real need for it is when you are in public and there's other people nearby. Well, well, just to add to that, I, I mean, I've seen people on their bike solo with a mask on, and that doesn't seem like that's an appropriate use either, because it, it would be difficult to catch a virus with somebody riding by on a bike, wouldn't it? It's going to be much less likely. There could be some viral particles, but you wouldn't expect to get a load. I mean, and to some extent, I guess it depends on how sick that person, the person riding the bike is. Sure. Uh, and I, I actually wanted to sort of, uh, sorry, Dr. Jason Hogan, did you want to add to that? Yeah, just uh, another quick point. You know, there was a study in Nature uh, last month that showed that, you know, if, if worn properly with the right fit, like we were talking about, that surgical masks are effective at blocking 99% of respiratory droplets expelled by that individual. Um, and that, you know, the double layer kind of cotton masks that a lot of individuals might be making at home or uh, been sh are being shown to be almost equally as effective. Um, and I think there's a uh, increasing awareness that we have to have all of these together. And so if you have, you know, masks without the hygiene or hand washing, um, or if you have masks without, you know, kind of distancing, if we're not doing all these things effectively together, if there's not kind of community buy-in from that, then we're going to have kind of this, this patchwork um, effectiveness. The, and then the only other additional comment I have on that is that I think we also have to be, you know, recognize what we can do to 
be kind to one another, you know, and recognize that I'm not wearing a mask just to protect myself, but I'm wearing it to also protect other people around me. Um, and that, you know, you might be in the grocery store or a store and just because you feel like you're not at risk, there are other individuals there who might have compromised immune systems or other, you know, kind of um, comorbid diseases, whether it's lung disease, heart disease, that might put them at risk that are honestly probably in fear um, if you're not wearing a mask. And so, you know, if you can do, you know, one nice kind gesture and wear a mask, not again, because you're concerned about yourself, but you're trying to help another individual who might have a more adverse outcome. I think that's a, a message that we could take home as a community. Sure. Um, and I might just add that um, the mask, it really needs to be fairly high compliance in the community for it to really stop the spread of the virus. Uh, I think we've seen about, I mean, when I anecdotally go out, maybe 50% of the people I see are wearing it. So you're talking about much higher than that, right, Julie? Yeah, I don't have a figure, but uh, I would think 60%, 70%, something like that. So at 6.56, we have four minutes left in our conversation. We're going to start wrapping things up. I want to thank our panel for joining us this evening. Dr. Jason Hogan, emergency medicine physician at Gunnison Valley Health. Ian Billick, executive director of the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory. And Julie Marshall, retired professor of epidemiology at Colorado School of Public Health. We will be posting this conversation to KBUT.org within 24 hours. Hopefully we're going to be doing some uh, pulling from a conversation to some shorter clips to uh, highlight parts of the conversation this evening. Uh, and I wanted to sort of, this is my final question for the evening. And it's somewhat of a, a selfish one because I want to learn better how to uh, communicate difficult uh, scientific ideas uh, to the public. I think that's something we should all uh, know how to better do. Uh, we've been talking for the last few minutes about transmission, and um, there is a article online written by a professor of biology, um, and it's at AaronBromage.com, and I know that it's been circulated widely around the internet, and it just talks about transmission, and it talks about certain risks that are um, higher than others, um, the way transmission works. And this is a question for Dr. This is a question for Ian Billick, because um, Ian, I know that in your job as executive director of Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory, you're obviously uh, reading a, a wide variety of scientific research. Uh, and then in working with this uh, COVID-19 investigative science team, a lot, you know, there's, there's research that can be done uh, and then it needs to be communicated succinctly and, and well to the public. I'm wondering if Ian, uh, you have tips for what makes a good, you know, communicating science, um, this kind of information. Why did this article resonate so much with so many readers? Um, by the way, we're all going to, I'm going to be posting links to this uh, on our Facebook page along with uh, uh, when we post this uh, episode, but uh, Ian Billick, can you just kind of give us an idea of, of what's the best way that we can be communicating these rather difficult ideas? It's important to use clear, direct language, avoid a lot of acronyms, uh, avoid assumptions about what the audience understands. It's also true that people that are not good communicators, I think, don't necessarily understand the science as well. Um, kind of what we've learned the hard way is, is that people that truly understand the science are able to translate that to a wide variety of audiences. And sometimes a lack of communication is not that they're just a bad communicator, but maybe they're struggling to understand 
the science themselves. I think that article was particularly powerful um, because not only did he use clear direct language, he talked about things that people could easily understand. When I work as a scientist, often I try to create an image in my head, whether it's a mathematical model or a physical model, what it is I'm trying to understand. And I think he did a very good job in terms of talking about viral loads, the number of little viruses that get into your lung. Is it one, a thousand, a million? Um, he used very evocative language that people could understand and was able to take a lot of the readers to the next level of understanding. So, um, and then I think people were just hungry for something. And so I think timing is always an important part of science communication because if people aren't ready for the information, it's just going to bounce off of them. And I think when that article was released, I think people were very hungry for something that they could understand and develop an image in their head of how the virus was working. And, uh, you know, that's something we I can definitely relate to. We know that the public continues to be hungry. We've gotten a flurry of questions submitted just in these final few minutes, which means um, that I'm likely to ask everybody on this panel to, again, join us one day for a, a Monday night broadcast Q&A that we've been doing now for uh, I believe this is our ninth episode. I just want to thank everybody for participating. Of course, Chris Rourke, you've been here um, on on all of them, I believe. I appreciate your being here tonight. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks. I, I've appreciated understanding more from the scientific level, uh, you know, how transmission works and all of it. And and again, I think that the more we know and, and the more transparent the numbers are, that um, there will be more community buy-in and, and people will be able to understand how to do this dance that, um, that Jenny Reynolds has talked about, you know, in, in, in monitoring the numbers and making modifications accordingly. So I'm looking forward to the coronameter. As am I. Thank you, uh, Julie Marshall, retired professor of epidemiology at Colorado School of Public Health. We hope to have you back on the show sometime. Thank you. Dr. Jason Hogan, I believe, what is this, your third time on KB on the show tonight, or is it just the second? Second? Just well, the second. Uh, and, yeah, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to have us on here and for all the work that KBT has done to you know, help get our message out and you know all these continuing efforts and help keep the public informed. You guys are doing an excellent job. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Ian Billick, thank you for joining us this evening as well um, and adding to this conversation. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. This is Community Radio for the Gunnison Valley. Stay tuned. We're two minutes past 7 p.m. Uh, we are heard at 90.3 KBUT Crested Butte, 88.7 KGNI Gunnison. Bobby's World is coming up next. <laughs>